Good evening. This is a special broadcast of Socolo, a cultural forum for the new LA. Socolo, which means public square in Spanish, is dedicated to fostering greater intellectual and cultural fellowship across ethnic, racial, and partisan lines. Tonight's program features Andres Martinez, the new editor of the editorial page of the Los Angeles Times, in conversation with LA City Council member Eric Garcetti. Mr. Martinez is the former New York Times editorialist and a Pulitzer Prize finalist. He is the author of 24-7, Living It Up and Doubling Down in the New Las Vegas. Tonight he discusses his recent transition to Los Angeles, his vision for the Times, and L.A.'s mayoral race. Socolo is proud to present an evening with Andres Martinez. I wanted to start with a, a quotation that you cited in your book, 24-7, um, which is Andres's book about some episodes in Las Vegas, um, and we'll let him explain a little bit more. But you quoted Howard Hughes, who we're hearing a lot about these days uh, around Oscar time. But you said, the strip is supposed to be synonymous with a good-looking female, all dressed up in a very expensive diamond-studded evening gown and driving up to a multi-million dollar hotel in a Rolls Royce. If that was the description that you gave about Las Vegas. Describe what you find the topography of Los Angeles to be so far in your time here. Well, that's a that's a uh, that's a tough question for starters. Um, um, I think the I'm not sure I can give you a definitive description of Los Angeles yet. One of the things that strikes me is that L.A. is uh, not the easiest place to, to define at the outset. Um, you know, I, I came from New York where I think within a week of being there, you, you kind of had an impression of the place uh, that was very well defined and that would pretty much stay true for however many number of years you, you spend in New York. Uh, you, you were there for college. I mean, there's always more exploring to be done in New York and there's a wealth of of sort of subcultures in New York, but the overall impression of the place is is pretty overwhelming and it kind of hits you. LA is is more Los Angeles is more of a of a, a mystery and it's it's kind of a number of different worlds um, that need to be explored. So I, when you were when you were starting to read what the, the Howard Hughes quote, I, I you know halfway through it, I thought, well, some of this could apply to uh, to Los Angeles and perhaps the the West Side, where where I've been spending time. So I, I I don't I'm still writing that definition. You you've had the opportunity to live many places in your life, obviously from um, Mexico and and the East Coast. Um, spent time in Northern California and here. What what compelled you to come to Los Angeles? I mean, obviously it was a great offer for a great job, but what about Los Angeles? If anything compelled you to come here? I think that. I've always been intrigued by California. I, I was I spent a lot of time in New York, and it always it would always sort of rub rub me the wrong way the way some uh, native New Yorkers think that the the world revolves around the city. Um, and I, I love New York, but I I've always felt that you know for a long time now California is the real trendsetter in the country. And one of one of my got a fan over there. <laughs> And particularly if you look at it from a sort of global point of view and you think about what it is that defines the United States, if California were to secede, uh, we would be talking a lot about the sort of Californianization of the world as opposed to the Americanization. 
when you think of technology and you think of, of the, the culture that emanates from Hollywood, the popular culture. Um, so I always had the sense that California was the most important state in the country, obviously. Uh, that goes without saying. And I felt that a lot of my fellow New Yorkers uh, were in a bit of denial about that. It's always been intriguing to me why in the world that, that I live in, in terms of the business of media, there's been a, a particular sense of denial about this. And the publishing world and the media world is still very much one that, you know, realms that revolve around the, the East Coast in contrast to the sort of broader economy, um, again, going back to sort of technology and uh, Hollywood in particular. And also I grew up in Mexico, which is another important part of the answer, that coming to L.A. had that appeal of a feeling of being halfway home in, in a sense. And I think uh, a lot of the, the most poignant, interesting national stories are defined more clearly by what happens in California than in a lot of other places, and the West and the Southwest, whether you're talking about environmental, the environmental story, the, the real thorny issues involving immigration, and a lot of the economic issues. I just thought this was a, the place to be now. So I won't even mention the weather. <laughs> did, did you do anything in, in specific to prepare for coming to Los Angeles? I mean, are there any L.A. books that you read, any L.A. bands that you listened to? Were there things that kind of um, you, you figured either beforehand to prepare you or now that you're here that you're doing to kind of soak in L.A.? Well, I got a, a lot of copies of uh, Kevin Starr's books uh, from a number of people, and I've, I've been dutifully making my way through those. And I've always, you know, tried to read up on, on, on California, but all of this happened so quickly last, uh, late last summer and early fall, and it coincided with our having our first child, and the, the move was happened pretty quickly. So I feel like I'm still immersing myself in my introduction to L.A., well, walk us through a, a typical week, and you probably don't have a typical one, but right now in terms of um, what part of the city you're living in, where are you spending most of your time? Are you on kind of the downtown and home access only, or are you getting out um, into some of the neighborhoods of Los Angeles? And, and just share through your eyes kind of the city that we all um, experience every, every day, what, what a week looks like to you, both you know, outside of work and, and work itself. The first decision that we faced when we uh, came out was the daunting uh, whether to buy decision that, you know, newcomers anywhere face. And uh, it was really daunting, and we suffered from sticker shock. Even coming from New York, I mean, it's, it, it's probably comparable, but it's the one place we could have moved uh, where we wouldn't have got, gotten a, somewhat of an advantage on, on the housing front. So we decided to, to rent for a year or two, particularly as we defined sort of uh, where my wife will work and and rearrange our, ourselves. So we're renting right now uh, in uh, Marina del Rey and uh, enjoying the beach and then exploring more neighborhoods, neighborhoods that are closer in to downtown where we'll probably end up buying. Um, one of the great advantages of being uh, in my profession is that every day we meet with, uh, most days we have you know really interesting meetings with uh, local personalities and more, most recently with the mayoral candidates. And so I, we, I've been trying to learn about the city by this parade of interesting visitors coming in and, and getting out and, and seeing some of the new neighborhoods. Uh, a couple of weeks ago I, I went to uh, lunch in uh, Boyle Heights, which was great, in uh, a restaurant called La Serenata, which really made me feel like I was three-quarters of the way home to Mexico. 
the, the one thing that, that's been a little bit disappointing about the timing of all this, I mean, I, sh I shouldn't even say this because, you know, I, I could go on and on about the joys of, of fatherhood and, and how that changes one's life. But in terms of the timing, it, it's probably cramped our exploring time a little bit in terms of, of getting out and about. I think we're, we're quite good about taking Sebastian out, but we're probably not being as uh, adventurous on, on weekends as we would have been otherwise. Well, I think we can all, all confess that that's one of the toughest things and one thing that you'll never stop doing in, in one's entire life, even if you spend the rest of it here in Los Angeles, is, is exploring those neighborhoods. Let's move on a little bit to your professional work now. You, you've written from many different voices. or You've had the opportunity to write a book, to be an editorialist. You were blogging before there was such a, a term as blogging uh, through the Slate Diaries. You are writing op-ed pieces and a columnist. Do you find it difficult to maintain and do you find any need to maintain kind of a, a singular voice in that writing across these different genres? And if not, how do you kind of separate uh, where you put yourself in those writings um, in those very different sort of undertakings? I think this, I mean, this is something that we all struggle with a bit when, we, when we're talking about the editorial page. You want to have an editorial page that has a, somewhat of a consistent voice. Um, I, I'm always, I always feel like I'm doing my job right if my mother calls and says, did you write that editorial? And it turns out somebody else wrote it or, you know, vice versa. It shouldn't be that easy to pick out exactly which writer wrote an editorial since it is a collective product. The danger, of course, of that is is that you don't want to squeeze all life and personality out of an editorial. So the uh, the goal is for that collective voice to have a lot of personality, more so than one person's voice, uh, not less. Maybe it's because I, having studied law, uh, the sort of writing in the royal we does come somewhat naturally to me. Um, I clerked for a judge for a year after law school, and I find that writing editorials is a lot like writing drafts of, of uh, legal opinions for a judge, except uh, fortunately they're a lot shorter. But it's sort of, you know, after hearing both sides of an issue, you know, we find X, Y, and Z, and here's the proper remedy. What I strive for is to have some personality in the editorials despite that. Um, and depending on the subject, you, you do have a lot more license. And so some writers who will write more often on a lighthearted subject, such as Andy Malcolm, who's well known to a lot of our page readers, it'll be easier to pick out um, his editorials and some of the other ones that are more directly on policy. Just uh, just on that, I mean, one of the things that people often debate around here, and I think they've debated for years with the Los Angeles Times, is w what is the Los Angeles Times voice? It would be interesting to, to hear you describe what you think, if any, voice the Los Angeles Times has or is striving to have. If somebody, you know, people want to peg that often on a political spectrum. Is it conservative? Is it moderate? Is it liberal? But thinking even more broadly than that, um, what would you love to have people a year or two from now be describing the Los Angeles Times voice from an editorial perspective as? I think the, the editorial page should come across as a, a smart, reasonable, liberal in, 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 in certain ways persona um, and not entirely predictable. As a voice, we should, be, we should also strive to be consistent um, in term, and intellectually honest. 
Is there, is there a blurring uh, right now? And maybe you can define for everybody what you're doing as an editorial page editor versus what's going on with the op-ed pages, because there seems to be, in some cases, a, a bit of a, a blurring between the two. And is that something intentional where you want to have that be much more of a direct conversation between the left page and the right page, have some of the personalities jump sides, as it were, sometimes named or unnamed? Um, and is, is that something that is the direction that you are intentionally going towards? To, to an extent. I mean, to the extent that uh, Michael Kinsley, who uh, oversees the editorial pages and the op-ed page and the Sunday opinion section, would like us to allow for more sort of cross-pollination. And the uh, editorial writers are encouraged to write some signed pieces, either for the Sunday section or for the daily op-ed page. Um, but as a general matter, you know, I think Michael and I have to be careful when we write our assigned columns that they don't get in the way of the editorials, meaning that it would be, it would be kind of silly for me to write a column that disagrees with an editorial we ran a week ago, and, and that's something we have to be mindful of. Um, there are certain subjects that lend themselves more to uh, assigned column and or the emphasis can be different and there might be a day when I really think we should pound the table on a certain subject and there's not enough of a consensus or it wouldn't be consistent with something else that we have said and then maybe it might lend itself more for a column but I don't I don't think that to the extent that you're seeing Michael write a column or that I'm writing a column or that other editorial writers are encouraged to do other types of writing that we're trying to devalue the, 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 the weightiness of the editorial page. Before we get into a couple of specific topics that are kind of, I think, what people are thinking about in Los Angeles, how much of an intention, or I actually had a, a friend who, when they heard that I was going to be moderating this, had done a study right after the election about how many editorials and op-eds were local versus national and international. And the statistic that she came up with was, I think, 11% of editorials were about Los Angeles um, in the nine weeks after the election, the presidential election, and 7% and of the op-ed pieces. Her thesis was that the paper is moving away from local editorial commentary. Is that something um, that you would agree with? And I know there's also the struggle, how do you be one of the four great papers in the country? The New York Times, for instance, can move away from some of the local coverage because it's taken care of by the Daily News and the Post. We don't necessarily have that here, so we don't have the freedom. You have to kind of right. do both jobs. Uh, is that something that you're moving away from? Um, and if, if not, how do you see that being incorporated? No, I, I don't think we're seeking to, to downplay local issues. And I, I, you know, I think part of the, one of the interesting questions is how do you define local? Um, and one of the things that I would like to see more of is for us to write about, extrapolate the sort of national significance of a lot of local matters. And I think, you know, I think the immigration story is one of the pressing local issues. I think this tug of war between Hollywood and Silicon Valley when it comes to digital rights, I, I see that as a quintessentially California slash local issue, which if you're doing a study like that, I'm not sure what, what column you put that in. There's no intention to write less frequently about the school district or King Drew or the mayoral race. Uh, so I don't know how that percentage would compare to the year earlier period. One of the other things I should mention is, I mean, it's, it's true that in the last 
six months, people have been very much focused before the mayoral election really kicked in. You know, with an election and a new administration coming in, the focus, I think, on a lot of people's part has been on, on national mm -hmm. matters. Um, I also think in L.A., in contrast to my experience in New York, um, the, the state uh, story is riveting and of paramount importance. Uh, I'm not sure if, if, if those editorials were in that 11% number, but... No, no they weren't, though. Um, local. You know, when you're in New York City, the New York Times, Albany seems about as far away as uh, Moscow does, mm -hmm. and when you're here, you, you quickly come to realize that Sacramento is, is a very important presence in our daily lives. And that, and that other city, too, whose name I forget. The... Uh, Let's t turn to some of the local issues. You've uh, talked about the mayor's race twice. Give us some of your impressions. Have, have you been able to sit down? Have you interviewed each one of the candidates? And, and you don't need to tip any hat as to where I think this Sunday uh, it's, you're going to make your editorial. Is that, is that right? But what is your impression? And do you think that, that Angelinos care much about this mayor's race? Um, yes, we have met now with all the candidates who have come by to seek our endorsement. And we are running the endorsement editorial this Sunday. One of the things that, that Judy Dugan, my deputy editor, keeps reminding me is of how many people vote early here. Because most newspapers would think of running an endorsement editorial you know, the Sunday before a big election, maybe two Sundays prior. But here with the number of, of early voters, it's, it's best to get a little bit ahead of the curve. I've got to say I've been fairly impressed by the, the candidates as a group. Um, I've been through in, a number of elections where... We've talked to mayoral candidates in, in New York and in Pittsburgh, and I think as a group, um, these guys don't get enough credit in terms of their, their preparation for the job. Um, I think part of that, I guess, we can attribute to uh, term limits at the state level and, the, and their, their ability to talk about uh, policy and to prescribe sort of their visions for the future of L.A. That's not to say that people are focusing a great deal of attention on this election. And I don't know, you know, as a newcomer, that's interesting to me, and I, I'm constantly urging us to think about ways in which we can write about the uh, race that will make it more interesting to people. But this gets into this whole debate about whether, you know, we can change the political culture and sort of galvanize it. And uh, Mickey Kaus had a provocative piece in the Sunday section a couple weeks back where he blamed us for the fact that people don't care because we don't gossip enough about the, the, the candidates' personal lives. So <laughs> I'm not sure I'd go that far. But the other thing is I, th I think it, that issue of whether people are engaged with the election goes back to your initial question about how you define L.A. And I think one, that's one of the things that, that these candidates struggle with. There's a, there's a, it seems to me there's a tremendous amount of presumptuousness involved to claim that you speak for all of Los Angeles, given just how disparate, how spread out, how diverse, and the richness of Los Angeles. For any one politician to say, I represent all of Los Angeles, I mean, that's a hell of a statement. And I think that it, it, for some reason to stand up and say you're the mayor of New York, I mean, that people can get away with that. And there's sort of a very defined piece of real estate and sort of political culture, then everybody knows what, what you mean by New York. And this gets into the, the sort of diffuseness of Los Angeles. And also, the, and then the weakness of the office, too. I mean, maybe we shouldn't blame people for not paying that close of an atten attention when the, there's only a certain limit to what the mayor can or can't do on a lot of the issues that people care about the most. Uh, 
education being the, the prime example. And then there's a sort of calendar question about election fatigue and, and the sort of cycle where Los Angeles has to turn its attention to a mayoral race after every presidential election, and that, that's asking a lot of people. I want to turn to, to some issues about immigration and, and kind of the impact that immigrants have had on this city. Uh, we are sharing, you know, my own family's history of one side coming from Mexico, one side coming from Eastern Europe, both of them settling in Boyle Heights, which when you drive by there, it's, it's predominantly Mexican now, but you can see the pastrami still sold at the taco stands and the kind of mixing of the cultures that was there. And people often talk about Los Angeles with all sorts of metaphors, the uh, a third world city in, in the diverse sense, capital of all these different countries outside of those respective lands. And it was interesting. I was talking to a friend of mine who's a Los Angeles Times reporter. And when the tragedy of the Glendale train wreck uh, happened on the border of Glendale in the area and Atwater Village that I represent, um, I asked her if she had been sent out there to the scene. And she said no, but I did spend the rest of the afternoon listening to Channel 34, 52, and 62 because the individual who had parked his his car on the tracks uh, was Latino, Spanish-speaking. And while the English stations were kind of all looking about, trying to figure out what this was about, they were already having interviews with the neighbors, with the family, et cetera. And she was talking about how Los Angeles Times um, needed to listen to the Spanish stations to get the news. And her thesis was this was a city essentially living on two parallel tracks. And since you've lived in both of those tracks to some degree, though we have immigrants coming from everywhere, but both as uh, a native of Mexico and somebody who's spent many years in the United States as well, do you think that this is a city that is defined by immigration one? And is there hope for us to bring those two tracks together? Boy, that's, that's a great question. Um, and I think it's one of the questions that attracted me to, as I mentioned, to coming to Los Angeles, because if if this is a country that's built uh, on immigration, uh, it's 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 no more true uh, than it is in Los Angeles, um, that statement. I think it is, I mean, I, I, it, it, it would be hard to argue that the city was not built by immigrants, because the whole country was, and Los Angeles in many ways in the 20th century, um, and California, kind of took over from New York the role of being sort of the iconic Ellis Island uh, for the country, particularly later in the century. Um, and I think this is the great sort of unresolved social question uh, of our time. I mean, we get, anytime we write about immigration, um, and you can sort of sense this by listening to talk radio as well, we get inundated with mail. I, and this is true in the New York Times as well. Anytime we would run an editorial on immigration, the, the, the the volume of mail would be, you know, 10 times greater than on any other issue. Uh, it's really something that that sets people off. Um, at the same time, it's immigration is something that our society is so dependent on. I, the way I, I often think of the border is that we have this, you know, 2,000 mile long border with Mexico, and, it, and it, if you think of it, if we really had a fence going the whole way, there would be alternating signs. One would say, keep out, and the other one would say, help wanted. Uh, we are, as a society, in, in, in total denial about what we want, what we expect from immigration, and we're pra practically all of us are immigrants in one way or another. Um, so there's also a lot of hypocrisy that goes, goes on. That's not to say that you know, illegal immigration is of the same type. Um, but when you, but again, and you know, you, we have this arrangement where 
we say it's not lawful to employ undocumented workers, wink, wink, and yet we tolerate this black market of labor that, you know, depending on one's estimate, ranges between 6 and 10 million people. And we have, we've charged about, I think the number is about 300 immigration agents nationwide to police this, this whole issue. So clearly, at some point, there was a de determination made that we're going to look the other way. And I think, you know, the, the, the consequences of that are now catching up with us. The country has to resolve this. Um, in terms of a city like Los Angeles, I do think that those parallel tracks come together more often than people often realize. And sometimes it takes a tragedy like that or other tragedies to sort of wake people up. In New York, we had, you know, in the 9-11 was a, was a case in point where, you know, suddenly we, there was this debate about whether some of the, uh, the indemnification money should go to the undocumented workers that died in the towers. Pretty quickly, people came to their senses about what the answer ought to be on that. As a newspaper man, what do you read and what do you listen to in a given day? You know, are you reading your main three national competitors? Are you reading the Daily News or a local paper? Are you listening to talk radio or just, you know, the wonderful 89.3 KPCC? Um, what, what are you listening to and what are, you, what are you taking in for your sources of information? One of our closest friends uh, back in New York, their three-year-old son used to say, uh, Whenever I'd, I'd come by, he was about, I guess he was closer to four at the time, but he'd say, he'd say, Mr. Martinez reads newspapers for his job, which was actually kind of scarily accurate. Um, I sort of told him, like, don't, don't tell anybody, Jason. Uh, but, but it's true. I mean, a lot of what, what goes into my job is, is the need to sort of digest uh, a lot of different types of media. And I, the, the biggest difference since I've moved to L.A. is obviously I'm – spending a lot more time listening to the radio um, than I did in New York. What stations uh, are you listening given to? Well, 89.3, of course. <laughs> NPR. And talk radio? Um, I actually should listen to more talk radio than I, than I do, um, just to get a sense of, of what's been being said out there. But, you know, the commuting time and the car is, is the new thing, and, and that involves a lot of radio. In terms of newspapers, I, I do try to keep up with, with um, sort of the other national dailies, and I, I read the Financial Times as well, or at least when I say read, I look at it, and there might be a few articles that I uh, that really stand out. Um, I read the USA Today. I think the USA Today does a fairly good job of identifying national trends uh, before other papers. I read the Wall Street Journal. There's always some great article in, in that paper that nobody else has, has picked up. I at least glance at all the, all the various editorial pages from the Daily News here to the FT and the Wall Street Journal. Um, I'm not reading the Washington Post as closely as I used to. I'm not sure why that is. I don't get it on my desk every day, and it's, a part of it is the whole transition, I guess, to the web experience where I, I'm, I'm – I occasionally check their website and I try to read their editorials, uh, but I'm not reading it as closely. I, I, I'm a big fan of Slate's, and I'm not just saying that because Michael Kinsley founded it. Um, and I, I read some blogs. I know I speak for everybody here, Andres, when I say thank you for spending your time for uh, 
pushing the, the back the curtain and showing us kind of how these things get done that we read every single day. Um, he certainly didn't ask me to pitch this, but this is his book 24-7, Living It Up um, and Doubling Down in the New Las Vegas, which is a great read. This is actually the Los Angeles Public Library's edition. I was, this is not a new city policy, but I was wondering if you could sign it for the people of Los Angeles <laughs> so when they check it out. And it being a, a good public library book, somebody already did sign it once, but we will <laughs> ask you to do that. And thank you with our applause for a wonderful... Thank you. Thanks. You've been listening to a special presentation of Socolo, a conversation with Andres Martinez and Eric Garcetti. The Los Angeles Public Library and Socolo, a cultural forum for the new L.A., present this monthly lecture series. Socolo, which means public square in Spanish, is a nonpartisan, multi-ethnic forum providing an opportunity for intellectual fellowship in Southern California. Sponsored by 89.3 KPCC, Socolo is made possible by the Semper Law Group, Washington Mutual, and the Library Foundation of Los Angeles. For more information or to listen to past shows, please visit our website, SokoloLA.org. Thanks for joining us.